the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Friday edition. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything is on the table. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free by calling 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. We've got a busy weekend around. I know you do too. It's Communion Sunday uh, this week and I happen to be teaching uh, in First Corinthians chapter 11 about communion. So that's great timing by the Lord. Um, but sooner than that tonight, uh, we're actually beginning in the book of Revelation. So we are going to um, do an introduction to the first eight verses of uh, Revelation chapter 1 uh, as an introduction to the book of Revelation. And I think uh, this book is really going to be a blessing. It promises it's going to be a blessing, but uh, I, I really... I'm really expecting that God is really going to do something in individual believers' lives, and and I hope here at Calvary Chapel as well. You might as well get on board. You can watch it at calvarysa.com by live stream at 7 o'clock. And if, in fact, uh, you want to join us, we usually have room on Friday nights, so we'd love to have you here as well. Well, let me get to questions and some other things that are going on Uh, And then we will see where the Lord goes today as we await your phone calls. Um, My first call is, or my first question rather, is from Patricia. Uh, She says, Hi, Pastor Ron, I hope you're doing well. My question is this, when a person disqualifies themselves, does that mean that if they repent, truly repent, then they are qualified again? Or is one disqualification and that's it? I think and hope we can be qualified again after repenting, but I wanted to see what you have to say about it. Thank you for the time. Uh, Patricia, my pleasure. Uh, I think, you know, we can always be restored by God and we can always turn to him in repentance. If our repentance is genuine, then in fact, uh, God is going to use us again. Uh, God's calling, God's gifting is irrevocable. Um, And I think the, 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 the... primary thing that we need to think about when we talk about somebody disqualifying themselves through sin is that God is the place we run to. And whenever he forgives and restores, and that's what his desire is to do, whenever we do that, then um, it's always for more ministry, not less. So, of course, we can be restored, and that's God's desire. Now, let me put sort of a qualification in here, uh, Patricia. 
uh, because I think there are some callings and some sins that disqualify somebody forever from uh, particular roles. I'll give you an example. Uh, as a pastor, uh, Jesus says, too much is given, much more is required. As a pastor, I believe that God has entrusted me with the people that he loves. Now, if I were to um, misrepresent him, remember Moses was uh, banned from the promised land for misrepresenting God when he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Uh, it sounds harsh to us, but, but Moses, because he sat in the presence of God, his face shined. I mean, the, the, the glory faded, but I mean, Moses was accountable. He was the way God communicated to the people, and Moses was disqualified. Now, he made it to the promised land, the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and we know Moses is going to have a very revered place in heaven. So all of that we know is true. But as a pastor, Patricia, if I were to um, have an affair with somebody in the church, or if I was to cheat on Paula, who prayed for me for 13 years, I can't even imagine that conversation I would have to have with God. But, but I think if I violated that kind of covenant, I think personally I would be disqualified from ever being a pastor again. Now, God could still use my gift of teaching. God could still use uh, my gift of counseling. Uh, but, but I think I would be removed from the trustworthy position of, of being the pastor of this church. So uh, I know a lot of Calvary Chapel pastors, friends of mine, and I'm using Calvary Chapel. I mean, obviously this happens in every church. But I know a lot of guys who are really gifted, infinitely more gifted than I am. And they blew it, and they're no longer doing what God created them to do. And when that's the case, it is sad. Uh, I, I told the story recently on a Sunday about a friend of mine who disqualified himself, and he said every Sunday is the worst day of his life because every Sunday he's reminded of what he's missing out on. Every Sunday he's aware that he ought to be in church ministering the Word of God to people that he loves and people that God loves, and he's forfeited his right to do so. So I think in, in positions like that, I think we would be disqualified. Again, I'd be able to minister. There's still work in the church I could do. I could be forgiven, all of that. But I just don't believe that it would ever be appropriate for me to pastor again. So uh, I think that's a qualification. Um, I will say that there are a lot of people who disagree with me on this. I think their disagreements are emotional. Well, well, well David fell, and he was called a man after God's own heart. Uh, they'll say, but, but I just think that's emotional. I think we've been given a trust. And when we violate that trust, I don't think we can be um, restored to that very same position. And, and as from my perspective, uh, being a pastor is one of those, one of those areas where uh, we could not be entitled to do the same function again. So I think for the rest of the world, it's okay. But again, too much is given. Jesus says much more is required. Thank you for the question, Patricia. God bless you. Here is a question, this time from our email inbox, sent anonymously. Pastor Ron, what is your guidance on taking online Bible colleges, one like Moody Bible Institute at the King's University? Um, anonymous, I don't know anything about the King's University. I haven't um, checked into it. Um, Moody Bible Institute, I think, is is solid. Um, I think it's a little bit expensive. I think Liberty, uh, their school of theology, is fairly solid. Um, but um, I, I'm really the wrong person to ask for guidance uh, on taking online Bible Bible college, pursuing degrees or pursuing uh, ordination, that kind of thing. So uh, I really don't know and don't have a lot to contribute. I, I am finding it more and more difficult to uh, recommend um, seminaries or Bible colleges uh, simply because people are taking really goofy doctrinal positions. Uh, I went to the Calvary Chapel Bible College um, and, um, you know, some things have happened since Pastor Chuck's death. Uh, and and I no longer recommend 
uh, our own Bible college anymore, and it's sort of fading out of the out of the picture. So uh, I really don't know. I think this is really one of the places, Anonymous, where you really need to pray, to seek the Lord's leading. Uh, he opened doors for me at the time when I was looking into Bible colleges, and I'm confident he'll do the same for you. I apologize for not being more direct, having more information, uh, but I just would hate to give uh, counsel and then find out that I gave the wrong advice to somebody. So I hope that helps. Let's go to the first phone call of the Friday. Cindy is online too. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I, um, I'm curious about, just thinking about Jacob when Joseph told him about the visions that God had given him. And I'm wondering how, how Jacob dealt with that after he thought that, that uh, Joseph uh, was killed. Because well, it says Genesis 37:11. it says that he kept the matter in mind. So, you know, his brothers didn't believe the vision, but, but, but Jacob kept, kept that in mind. And I'm wondering how long it would have been that, um, that Jacob would have refused to believe that, that, you know, that Joseph was dead, that there was just, you know, something else going on and eating and waiting for, for the visions that, uh, that Joseph, that God gave Joseph to come true, you know, or if he just kind of figured that, you know, maybe he really didn't hear what God was telling him, and and he just decided to to uh, just just to throw in the towel and, and give up. And that was yeah. my one thing. And then my other thing is uh, John chapter uh, the the Gospel of John chapter eleven, forty nine through fifty three. If if you uh, explain explain what was going on there for me, and then I'll get off the phone and and listen on the radio. Really good study, oh. by the way. Um, huh. Wednesday night, I, I want to listen to it again. It was so good. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. God bless. Um, Cindy, let me ask, answer the first question first. Um, Jacob, I, I you know I've studied Genesis. This is my third time through uh, Genesis here at Calvary Chapel. And and uh, Jacob and I, Jacob and I have a kinship, and I, I I think I feel Jacob's heart. And um, you know when Joseph first came to his brothers and then to his father um, with his dreams, um, I, I'm sure they were dismissed as sort of arrogant youth. The, the brothers didn't care; they didn't like Joseph, and and that just gave them more reason to 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 dislike him. Um, but Jacob says he filed it away. That's my my words. He 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 kept it in mind. I think he did. Uh, I think he knew his son. I think he kept it in mind until that moment when his brothers came back to Jacob with his bloody coat of colors and said, uh, "Is this your son's?" And he said, "Yes." And Jacob, I think Jacob completely gave up at that point. He he refused to be comforted. He kept saying, "My gray head will go down to the grave in distress." Things of that nature. And I don't think he actually gave it another thought. I, I think he was so bereaved, he refused to be comforted. Now, I, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but even in the midst of the worst kinds of grief, we have to be willing to be comforted. I mean, the Holy Spirit's title, Jesus said, is comforter or counselor. And so I think when we get to that point, we're not hearing anything from the Spirit at all. And we know that Jacob, for more than 20 years, thought Joseph was dead and refused to be comforted. And the result was he got more and more cynical, uh, more and more separated from the family, more and more protective of, of the sons that he had, in particular Benjamin. And uh, Cindy, I think for all practical purposes, um, Jacob just didn't think in spiritual terms anymore until it says when he saw Joseph or when he was convinced that Joseph was alive finally. It says his spirit was revived. And I think at that moment, I really believe with all of my heart, knowing God as I do, that, that, that those dreams came flooding back into his mind and, and he thought, oh God, I never should have downed you. So that's a great object lesson, Cindy. Thanks for the question. John chapter 11, um, starting in verse 49, it says, Then one of the men, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. Um, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. 
And do not say, he did not say this on his own. This is verse 51. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Uh, Caiaphas, Cindy, as, as, as you know, was a, he wasn't qualified to be the high priest. In, in those years, the high priest was a position that was bought with bribes. And so he and his, uh, his relative Annas, uh, they sort of took turns doing it. And Caiaphas, in his role as high priest, this is like Balaam's donkey. When, when um, uh, Balaam um, heard his donkey talk, the donkey became a prophet for God. Balaam himself, and I have a question on Balaam coming up. Balaam himself was only a prophet because he spoke what God told him to do only when God told him to do it, and sort of God interrupting. Well, this is the case with Caiaphas. He was prophesying the future. It's better that one man die than the people. He was prophesying Jesus' death. He didn't know it. He wasn't aware of it. He certainly wasn't used by God. And this doesn't mean that he was a prophet of God in good standing. It just means that God used the person Caiaphas and his position as the high priest that year to, um, out, of the own, out of his own lips, uh, came the truth of what was going to happen. So uh, Caiaphas, an unwilling party, but God simply imposed his will on Caiaphas in this case, so that Caiaphas uh, was responsible. I like to remember Cindy, uh, or think about that that moment when Caiaphas stood before Jesus to be judged. Can you imagine what that was like? And and I think Jesus, all he would have to do is play Caiaphas' own words. He said, this came out of your lips, but you didn't even believe it. And the key there is that from that moment on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. So that's what's going on there. It is a great exchange. I, I love chapter 11 in the Gospel of John. Thank you very much, Cindy. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is the question I had on uh, Balaam. Um, Pastor Ron, in reading Second Peter and Jude, both make reference to Balaam's wickedness and cast him in an extremely negative light. A footnote reference to Revelation, so I looked at that and was reminded that the church at Pergamum, Pergamum, I can't read it, it's too small for my my eyes here, was chastised, Pergamum is the the, the church, uh, was chastised for holding to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. At this point, I was confused because Balaam, to me, is just a donkey guy. I like that, John. After he gets chewed out by his donkey, he seems to have done exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. God tells him to go, then gets angry when he does. So I suppose we can infer that God knew he was going with imperfect motives. That's right. But through the balance of the narrative, Balaam seems like a champion of God. Yes, chapter 25 of Numbers talks about Israel's sexual sin with the Moabite and Midianite women at Shittim, but I'm failing to see the connection to Balaam. Now, here's what's going on, and and make no mistake, Balaam is not a good guy, and Balaam was not a prophet of God. He was a, uh, they they called him a seer. Uh, This was a man that uh, the evidence suggests he was empowered uh, by demonic spirits, um, he had the ability to pronounce curses that that could come supernaturally from those demonic spirits. Um, but he's only called a prophet of God because God spoke through him. Remember uh, when uh, Balak, the king, wanted to um, curse Israel. He was afraid of Israel. He said he wanted you to curse him. He paid a lot of money to get Balak to go. And... Um, when Balak went to curse him, Balaam, of course, wanted the money. So when, when Balaam went to curse him, God interrupted him and said, no, you can't curse him. These are my people. My blessing is upon them and warned him not to do it. Uh, he still wanted the money. He still wanted the money. So what Balaam did was he figured out a way where they would curse themselves. And by that, I mean he introduced them to sexual immorality and false worship, idol worship, 
Um, he brought in the, the Moabite women, the Midianite women, and they would seduce the Israelite males and introduce, as a part of the sex act, the worship of false gods. And so that's what Balaam did, and that's why in the book of Revelation, uh, when it says they, they, they practice the, the, the doctrines of Balaam, uh, those are not good things. So uh, John, he is not a good guy, uh, wasn't a prophet uh, of God until God spoke through him. Thank you for the call. We got two calls waiting, so let's go to Llano, Texas, and uh, Yano, Texas, I think it is, and Dustin online too. Dustin, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, I wanted to thank you for your previous advice, but I have a question about Jacob. When okay. uh, he when he was fighting with the stranger all night and right before he got touched in his hip and he limped afterwards, what was what was the whole point of why was he fighting the stranger? Dustin, he wasn't a stranger at all. That was Jesus. Genesis chapter 32. It is probably the signature chapter in my life. Um, it is It is a chapter that I take, literally, I use every single day of my life. Um, when, I'm, when I'm beginning my walk with the Lord, um, I will not let go until you bless me. That was what Jacob was doing. Now, here's what was going on. Uh, Jacob was a man who had a call by God. Jacob had a destiny that had been created by God. And Jacob, his name means supplanter or con man. Um, Jacob, when he was trying to do things on his own terms, was always trying to figure out how to get over on God. He wanted the blessing of God, but he didn't want to do things God's way. So he was always trying to manipulate God. Well, at some point when he came to a crossroads in his life, that's where he encountered Jesus in Genesis chapter 32, and he wrestled with Jesus. Now, the first part of the night, Dustin, he was wrestling to get away from the Lord. He was refusing, like so many of us do, refusing to let Jesus control our lives. Um, and, and Jesus, at some point, just gave up, said, okay, I'm, I'm done wrestling with you. Jesus will not override our free will. But before he did, he touched Jacob's hip, and he crippled him. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life. And it was at that moment that, that Jacob finally understood the power that he was wrestling to get away from. Now, remember, Jacob is on his way to meet Esau, and he's terrified he's going to need help. He thinks Esau is coming to kill him. He realized that this is the power that I'm trying to get away from. I need that power. And Jesus let go and Jacob held on. And that's why Jacob said, I will not let go until you bless me. And uh, we know it was Jesus because Jacob writes, I have prevailed again. I've wrestled with God or struggled with God and prevailed. He won the wrestling match by losing it. He gave up. Jesus wouldn't give up on him. Finally, Jesus resisted no longer, touched him, crippled him, and Jacob held on for dear life. And that's what was going on. Um, Dustin, go to calvarysa.com and get my teaching out of Genesis 32. It's very, very personal for me. Great question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go line one and talk with Mark from San Antonio. Mark, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Yes, this is more of a worldview philosophical question. Um, Why do you think so many millennials and the generation behind them are so attracted to socialism and Marxism? And what ramifications do you think that has for just not our general culture, but the Christian church? And why so few pastors are speaking about that? (laughs) Oh, Mark, thank you. I'll do that. And this may go over to over the break a little bit to finish. I'll try to be concise, but at the same time, uh, you know, typically I don't want to talk about my opinions about things, but this is something that our culture is dealing with and we've got to deal with it. And, and the only effective way to deal with it is in the word of God. Uh, and I'm going to give you my opinions and you can dismiss them or you can accept them. But uh, I believe that we have raised and this is going back to my generation as parents. We've raised children uh, that that are entitled. Um, they like being taken care of. They don't want to accept responsibility. I'm speaking generally, of course. There are always exceptions, and I'm privileged to serve with so many of those exceptions. But the idea of going out and earning things um, has very little appeal for young people. 
Uh, we gave them trophies for participation uh, when they lost. We never taught them to struggle. We never taught them the value of the fight. We never taught them the, the patience uh, virtue. Um, we just, and I'm responsible. I wanted my kids to have it easier than, than I did. And I gave them everything because I was wealthy. So I could do that. Um, and, and, and fortunately my kids have overcome that. They're both hard workers, but they just don't want to work. Um, they would rather be taken care of. They'd rather function according to how they feel instead of according to the truth. And uh, Mark, this affects our culture, our world, in more ways than I can communicate. Let me give you a couple of examples. We have an entire generation of people that have reduced their sexuality, their sexual identity to a feeling. I feel like a boy or I feel like a girl, though biologically I'm the other. And, and we tell them, well, we, in, your feelings matter. The feelings don't matter. What matters is facts. And we've simply done that. And I, I think there's a lot of pastors that are speaking out against this. But, but I get the opportunity as we talk about these things in the Word of God. I'm going to come back to this just for a little bit, Mark, on the other side of the break. I appreciate the call. We have 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand On for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our friday show 340-9585 for your live calls and questions i want to finish before i do this my producer just told me that today's national donut day and I told him in that this is never the case. I knew it was National Donut Day. My cross to bear in life is donuts. And I can't eat them, or at least I don't eat them very often. Well, because I just shouldn't. But uh, I, I've been in mourning. I told him, I said, I've been in mourning all day because I want donuts and I didn't get any donuts. Um, Mark, let me go back to what you were you were asking Um because what I want to deal with is I think I do have some some responsibility to to uh, talk about it from this perspective. I think the churches are in partly in part responsible for um, not being direct enough with the message. You know, we've turned church in the United States to a, a good news only kind of thing. You know, people the, Paul says that people will gather. Uh, teachers around them who who give who scratch their itching ears, um, who who tell them what they want to hear, and we've done that. We've stopped teaching the Bible. Now again, Calvary Chapel—that's what we do. But um, for the most part, churches stop teaching the Bible. They tell great stories. Uh, they will preach topical messages about issues going on, but but always in a very seeker-sensitive format. Um, because there just aren't a lot of preachers who are saying this is right and this is wrong because we don't want to take a stand. I mean, we get ex eviscerated on uh, social media. If we do, our teachings go around and we get all kinds of threatening. Most people just rather not deal with it. Um, there's going to be a price to pay for that. And I think, sadly, we have failed our congregants by not insisting on right and wrong by not preaching what's right and what's wrong in God's eyes. Now, again, I'm not responsible for this. We're doing what we can. Uh, and there's a lot of wonderful pastors and Bible teachers out there doing the same thing. I was listening to a message by Rander Draper at uh, Maranatha Bible Church the other day, and I know Rander a little bit, and he's a wonderful, wonderful guy, and he's so direct sometimes with his people that, that it, it makes me squeamish, and I'm really direct. I mean, he is a, a, a brother who declares the Word of God um, as it should be declared. It does it a lot better than I do, but um, 
I think churches that tell people the truth are the exception. Um, parents have been taught to raise their children to, to, to believe there's something special and rules don't apply and how they feel matters more than what's real. And uh, I think there's a time when, when uh, as Church of Jesus Christ, we've got to stand up and accept responsibility. Um, I speak about these issues here at Calvary Chapel when appropriate in the verse-by-verse teaching of the Word. Um, but uh, the truth of the matter is um, we've lost a generation and uh, they, they no longer know how to think critically. Um, they parrot what their professors, who are all so far, far, far left on the political spectrum, um, they just parrot what they're told. They don't check anything out anymore. They don't know how to process uh, facts versus feelings. And I think, Mark, we're paying the price for it, and I think we've only just begun. I personally believe, and since I'm starting in the book of Revelation tonight, I personally believe that, and I'm talking about inside the church, the great falling away has already begun. Professing Christian churches have completely thrown out the word of God. They, too, are functioning according to what people feel and what would make them popular, what people want to hear. And I think this is the great falling away that will happen or that, 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 that occurs just prior to the rapture of the church and the initiation of the Great Tribulation. So, Mark, I think we're in a lot of trouble. Uh, obviously, you think so as well. Um, but I'm telling you, it's epidemic. It's epidemic. And the only answer is a revival by God's Spirit. We're not going to change the schools. We're not going to change... Um, universities. We're not going to change uh, social media, the Twitter world. Um, Only God can do it, and that has to come through the proclaiming of His Word, the faithful teaching of God's Word, and a move of God's Spirit. So thanks very much. From our email inbox, this one is from Kirby. Pastor Ron, who do you think were the five brothers based on what was known of them who stood before Pharaoh in Genesis 47. I don't think Reuben was one of them or Levi or Simeon because of Shechem, but I definitely see Benjamin being there. You know, Kirby, there's no way to know at all who those five brothers were. Uh, If it was important, we would have been given that information. Uh, Five, I, I taught this just the other night, and five is the number of grace, and I think the only thing that matters from that passage is that when we read chapter 47, we should expect to see a lot of grace, and that's exactly what that chapter has. I really enjoyed my Bible study in Genesis 47 Wednesday night, and uh, uh, it really, there's no way of knowing, so uh, I I don't think there's any use in discussing it. Uh, I can tell you that I don't think for sure that Simeon was one of them, Um, but the others we have no way of knowing. You know, since the chapter was about grace, maybe I shouldn't even say Simeon wasn't one of them, because in a chapter about grace, why not send the worst of the sinners? So who knows? Uh, It's just uh, something we could speculate on, but really there's no value in doing that at all. Thank you for the question. 340-9585. Here is a question from Andy. Um... Why did it take God so long to send Jesus to pay for the sins of mankind? Um, and it didn't take him long at all. Um, Jesus came at just the right time. Um, God has a process, and we've got to understand that his process is beyond our ability to question. We can wonder, well, why? And, and sometimes we're often saying, how long, oh God? We see that in the book of Revelation with the tribulation martyrs under the altar crying out for vengeance. But remember that Jesus came at exactly the right time. We're told that three times in the epistles. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, Christ died for sinners. So the idea there is that Jesus had a schedule to keep. And so when Jesus came into the world as an infant, he waited 33 plus years to get the go signal. He was a grown man. He grew up. He learned things. He... he Eventually, at the wedding of Cana, heard God say, go, now it's time. 
And that was the process. And then all through the gospel accounts, Jesus is told that they, they're trying to make him be king and he would slip through them unaware. He, they, they wouldn't be able to see him. Um, a supernatural sort of an escape. But the reason Jesus told people not to tell him what happened, don't tell anybody um, what I did, don't tell anybody who I am, it was because it wasn't yet time. And he knew that when the miracles started coming, the crowds would try to force him to be their king. And what Jesus knew that they didn't know or didn't care about was that uh, Jesus had no intention of being the king they wanted. Jesus was going to be the king, the suffering servant king that they needed. So it didn't take him long at all. Now, we can look at history and we can say, well, thousands of years from the beginning, from Adam to Jesus, uh, that's a long time. Well, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So it was at just the right time. One final thought on this, Andy. The, the thing that I love the most about this is Jesus' triumphal entry. Because it was measured prophetically to the day that Jesus had to come into Jerusalem for the very first time to be proclaimed uh, the, the, the Jewish Messiah. The day, 173,880 days after the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. That's the day Jesus had to show up. If he didn't show up on that day, one day early, one day late, then he wouldn't have been the Christ. But he always had a mission. And I like to tell our church here at Calvary Chapel, because we, especially around Christmas, uh, when we always talk about baby Jesus, um, baby Jesus had no plan in life except to die. He, he wasn't born to have a career. He wasn't born to have a family. He wasn't born to, to have a, a good time, to be successful in business. Jesus, from the day he came out of Mary's womb, began the process of dying. May seem like a long time to us, but God's time is always perfect. Good question. Here's a question from Brandon. If God is about free will, why do so many Christians shove God in people's faces? Um, Brandon, we, we don't shove God in people's faces. Now, I, I recognize, I'm not being naive here, I recognize that there are a whole lot of unbelievers who feel like we're always trying to shove God in people's faces. But that's because they're being convicted. Our job is to represent and to present Jesus to people. And the reason we do that is because we love them. We don't want them to die and go to hell. Hell is a reality. And the people that know Jesus are going to go to hell. If you claim to love someone, a family member, a friend, a, a spouse, a child, and they don't know Jesus, they're not born again then you need to tell them over and over and over as well as to pray for them. So God gives everybody a free will choice. God never violates our free will. We have the right to make whatever choice we choose. What we don't have a right to do is escape the consequences. And then as Christians, our responsibility then becomes to tell people how to avoid going to hell. And so it's not that we shove God in people's faces at all. It's that we share the love of a God who loves them so much that he makes it possible for men and women who are born condemned already, John chapter 3, it makes it possible for them not to have to go to hell. So I hope that answers your question. Here is an anonymous question I can get rid of quickly because I've had it twice this week already. Pastor Ron, can women be pastors? The answer is no. Uh, I realize there are churches that do have women pastors. They are churches that are settling for less than the fullness of God's blessing. They are in rebellion against God. I've had them say, well, you don't understand. God called me. I know I'm called to be a pastor. God can't contradict himself, which means they can't even uh, exegete the Bible that they're teaching. And um, th this has nothing to do with qualifications. It doesn't mean that there aren't women who are more gifted teachers than men. It just means that God owns the church. It's his. We're his. And as servants of God, we're supposed to do what he tells us to do. And so if God said women can be pastors but men can't, I wouldn't be a pastor because I love God and I love his word. 
no matter what I felt like. But here's another case where I can go back to Mark's question where we got a world now that gives in to feelings. And the women that, that um, are no doubt are gifted Bible teachers, except for this blind spot, no doubt that they feel like God is calling them because it's a desire they have in their heart. But if they really were good Bible teachers, they would understand that they can't be at First Timothy 2.12. It can't be any clearer. There's no interpretation necessary. That's just what it says. I do not permit a woman to teach her of authority over a man in the church. Since the church is Jesus's, as Christians, it's our responsibility to be obedient. Is obedience better than sacrifice? That was the question Samuel asked Saul, and we all know the answer. Here is another question, this one anonymous. Why has every belief system caused a war or a feud? Uh, that's an easy answer. It's because people hate God. People want to be their own authorities, and they hate God. So because they hate God, um, they're going to use uh, whatever it is they believe in, whether it's believing in God or believing in something or someone else, um, there's going to be feuds. We're, we're fleshy, carnal people, and and we like to fight. Truth is, we we rebel against what we know instinctively is true. Uh, and when we harden our hearts, then the result is going to be these wars and feuds. But you can't blame any of those things on God himself. Here's another question just came in anonymously from our mobile app. In regards to attending homosexual weddings, can we apply 1 Corinthians 10, 27 through 29, especially verse 28, in how we should stand on the matter. Um, I've got it written here. I'll read it in just a moment. I'm invited to attend. I love those who invite me. They're my friends, but I do not want to partake in their ceremony. Your thoughts, please. Let me read the passage. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? Um, anonymous, and I'm going to be really direct with you in love, okay? If you love these people and you say you do, then you can't go. A wedding is a celebration. How can you, a Christian, celebrate somebody who is entering into a marriage contract that is going to eventually cause them to end up in hell. That's not love. That is not something to be celebrated. So it's something you simply can't do. The passage in 1 Corinthians 10, I just taught on that this past week as well. And um, um, that has nothing to do at all uh, with this thing. This is about uh, the, the Corinthians passage is about disputable areas where there's no black and white um, regarding homosexual marriage, this it can't be any clearer in Scripture that this is an affront to the God that we claim to love. And because you love those friends, you've got to tell them. Don't send them an email. You need to tell them. You know, I love you. I'm praying for you every day. I want you to be in heaven. And uh, I simply can't celebrate an activity that's going to bar you from getting into heaven. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. But you can't shove it in his face. You can't be willfully rebellious and expect to be okay. It may cost you the friendship, Anonymous, but it's something that you've got to understand. Jesus said he came to divide families. That's what he's doing. Uh, in this particular case, friends as well. Let's go to Seguin and talk with our friend Ruben online too. Ruben, thank you very much for calling. Good to hear from you. Thank you for taking my call, and once again, I want to thank you and everyone else who's praying for me and my dad. It's it's uh, seriously appreciated. Thank you very much. Um, I just have a question. Uh, over the weekend, I just I just wanted wanted to study the conflict that's going on over there in Israel and, and Gaza. And I just I took out a book that I had. And I didn't even know, I don't even remember I, I had. It was just a book on the presidents, and uh, it had nothing to do with Israel or Gaza. But as I was reading the book, um, 
I noticed that all the almost all the presidents and our forefathers, the one uh, the ones that started this country, they were all part of a of something called the Freemason. And I was under the 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 assumption that Freemasons are pagan worshipers. And they say that our country was founded on God. Um, I see a little bit of conflict there, or is it just <laughs> me? You know, how can this country be founded on God if they were pagans? See, you, you're 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 scratching an itch here, Ruben. That's really important. Before I answer that question, let me say this. Um, you will not get any honest evaluation of the situation in Israel, uh, the West Bank versus uh, the, the city of Jerusalem and, and, and uh, the, the, the two-state solution that's tried to been crammed down Israel's throat for years. You won't get any unbiased information uh, available from, from media sources and from many authors. Now, there are some people that you can read uh, who are uh, evangelical Christians um, that, that are going to give you information and facts. But what we know for sure is that there's never been a Palestinian people. Uh, the Palestine, um, they, they, these are refugees that came from Jordan. They were, they were virtually shut out of every nation in the Middle East. And they settled in Israel in the time when Israel was away from their homeland. But we have to remember that God gave that land to Israel. And in 1948, miraculously, God allowed them to come back into their homeland and reestablish as a nation. It's the only time in history that it's happened that way, um, where even after a, a, you know 15 or 20 years away from their homeland, it's never happened. But remember that for, for, for 1,900 years, um, it was empty. The, the, what we now call the Palestinians settled in that, that, that area. And, uh, and and they want title to it. But the land belongs to God. And, um, you know, the people that hate God are going to deny that. And that's why our media uh, bias is so slanted, uh, anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian. So um, that's the short version of what's going on. It's interesting because um, uh, Netanyahu now is, is uh, looking like he is going to be forced out of power. He's the strongest leader Israel's had. And um, we're going to see the United States and and the new Israeli government, when it's established, uh, pushing really hard for a two-state solution, which God is simply not going to let happen. Regarding the the Freemasons, uh, I laughed, Reuben, because your 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 discernment is is right on. Um, Freemasons. Now there are Christians who are Masons. Um, there are Christians who don't understand. It's a secret society. They do have pagan origins. Um, many of our forefathers, not all of them, but, but many, even most of them were. And um, Freemasonry is cultish. Um, so there are, there are some Christians who are Freemasons, but they are Christians who do not really understand their Bibles. They don't understand uh, the inner workings of the Freemasons. The, 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 the deeper you get into the levels of Freemasonry, um, the more secrets and inside information you get, uh, but you're right. There's there's simply no uh, connection between Freemasonry and the Bibles. They're they're actually in contradistinction one to another. So I always get a lot of heat when I say that because people say, "Well, I'm a Mason and and I'm a Christian." Uh, they're not a Bible taught Christian. Thank you, Ruben. Appreciate it. Got one last question that was sent in from Thomas. He said, "Can you please talk about?" Assemblies of God and what differs in their teaching from yours? Um, yeah, Thomas, I can pretty pretty easily. Uh, the Assemblies of God is is charismatic, uh, sometimes to the point of being out of control. Um, they they certainly do believe in the gifts of the Spirit being for today, but they function quite often in an out of control manner. For example, um, you'll see false teachers, false prophets. Who, who come from the Assemblies of God, who travel around to Assemblies of God churches, and they'll, they carry the prosperity gospel um, uh, among other false teachings. Uh, but but they're, they're out of order. You'll see people all speaking in tongues at the same time. You'll see uh, people flopping around on the floor. You've seen laughing revivals. You've seen vomiting revivals, all these kinds of things. 
a lot of these things started in Assemblies of God churches. Benny Hinn uh, is an Assemblies of God uh, ordained pastor, and, and there's just nothing orthodox about them. There are lots of really good Christians in the Assemblies of God, but they're not taught the Bible. And that's the biggest difference in, in them and us. They're, they're with us because they're family. They believe in all of the essentials of the faith, but they're out of order and their, their, their meetings do more harm than good in many cases. You know, in um, our, my first Corinthian study this Sunday, Paul is going to say to the Corinthians, your meetings do more harm than good. And that's because they're out of control. And you can see in, in many assemblies of God's um, congregations, completely out of control worship, uh, which really isn't worship at all, but you get what I'm saying. And um, um, for example, Assemblies of God, most of them will teach that unless you speak in tongues, you do not have the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're none of his. So they've really caused a lot of damage and things like this. But remember, on in, in terms of essentials, Thomas, uh, they are brothers and sisters in the Lord. They are just um, sort of lost when it comes to doctrine. There's a lot of goosebumps, a lot of excitement, uh, a lot of sweating and spitting, and not much Bible teaching and learning going on in the assemblies of God. Uh, there are exceptions. I know uh, two that I can think of off the top of my head, assemblies of God pastors who love God, love his word, and teach it faithfully, and they don't have out-of-control churches. So... Um, they're not a monolith. There's not a one-size-fits-all, but many, many times, uh, most of the time, those churches are hyper-charismatic, and there's all kinds of, of um, just out-of-order things going on in those churches. So I hope that helps. We're inside a minute now, so uh, I want to remind you that tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to be beginning in the book of Revelation um, introduction, the first eight verses of chapter one tonight. Um, I hope you'll tune in at calvaryessay.com or even come and visit us and uh, enjoy the teaching and enjoy the people here for yourself. And then communion Sunday for us. I'm sure it is for a lot of you as well. Uh, I pray you have a great communion Sunday and may the spirit of the Lord uh, fall upon your churches and may you be blessed. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May God richly bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.